We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening with regular ICRT commentators Ross Feingold. Good evening. And Brian Hugh. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a cross-strait media event that's facing a charge of being a tool for Beijing's unification propaganda machine, plans for a new identification card, a call from the European Union to scrap the death penalty, a former Causeway Bay books owner seeking employment here, and naturalisation for sporting purposes. But we'll begin with the latest election news which we can't avoid. And the KMT finalised its primary format this week, opting to use a single nationwide public opinion poll and to name its candidate in late July. The new rule scraps a primary format that was comprised only of a vote by registered party members. The poll will be commissioned by five different polling institutions, each with a sample size of not less than 3,000, and the candidate with the highest average score will represent the KMT next January. Simple. Now a list of candidates will be announced on June the 10th, followed by a series of televised policy forums, which will run here in Taiwan from June the 23rd through July the 4th. The public opinion poll will be held between July the 5th and 15th, and the results will be released on the 16th, and the KMT will formally announce its 2020 presidential candidate on July the 28th during its National Congress. Now, meanwhile, Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo-yu, whose place in the KMT's presidential race remains somewhat in question, depending who you ask. He opened a big old can of whoop ass this week by stating that if he represents the KMT next year and wins the election, he will set up an office in Kaohsiung. Now, according to Han, such a move will bring balance to the economic, cultural and political development between northern and southern parts of the island. Now, while it may sound odd, the current government has mulled similar ideas in the past, with a legislative move to Taichung and even opening an office in Kaohsiung, which, well, the president could work out of if she so desires. So, Ross, this week's election news. It's good to see that at least the KMT, unlike the DPP, is finally making some progress on what their primary system will be, although the DPP will get there eventually. Uh, It's taken too long, which is to the detriment of both the KMT and the DPP. But I think either party, if you were strategizing how to win the election, would have been better off setting their process early. But they get into this, uh, well, let's have a behind-closed-doors negotiation between the various candidates instead of setting the system early and saying the system is the system and you can compete in it if you want to. But but this maneuvering, this backdoor, this negotiation, some people trying to be the kingmaker, for example, so they could retain some influence if the candidate that they help facilitate gets elected, uh, trying to prevent people from having hurt feelings and uh, who knows what kind of offers are being made about, well, if, if you withdraw and support the other candidate, you'll get this job or some other privilege. Uh, there, there's too much of this, and that's really to the detriment of Taiwan's democratic system, unfortunately. Of course, Brian, not everyone in the KMT is happy with this because Wang Jinping is rather irked about the whole thing. That's right. And he himself was hoping to be the presidential candidate of the KMT. And he also was one of Han's supporters when he was running for Kaohsiung mayor. Um, He thought it was absurd that you could actually draft a candidate that didn't say that they're running themselves so long as they have supporters who can raise enough money to pay for the expenses for running. Um, So it's it's quite odd. And I think that this is that the KMT is deciding to go with... um, 
whoever is most popular in order to win the election, even if they can, this will overturn established hierarchies. And like Ross said, I think it is quite interesting that both the DP and the KMT have similar issues at the same time. Both parties face a question regarding direction and how to win over the public. And, so, and the fact that they've allowed these questions of who their candidate will be just to drag on for so long really undermines internal democracy of both parties. Something that, that Brian just said is also worth uh, discussing in, in detail. He said winning over the public. But as you said, Gabbett, there's only a sample size of how many people from each polling uh, agency, uh, 3,000. Uh, so that's a really small number, even if it's times five and, and they, 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 each company calls 3,000 unique uh, uh, respondents. Uh, that, that's a really small sample size. You think about the Guomindang or, or, or the, the DBP and how many registered members that might have. Or if you said this was going to be open to the public, not, not just party members, uh, to have such a small sample size to pick – their candidate is is kind of surprising. I mean, if you just do for comparison's sake uh, an open primary that that some of the parties have had in the past, and, and with larger sample size, or if you look at the United States with its primary and caucus system, where tens of thousands of people in one state, depending on the population, turn out to vote in a primary or, or participate in a caucus. Uh, as limited as that is, it's still a lot more people um, the, as a percentage of the electorate than we're talking about here. Uh, again. Again, uh, similar to my earlier point about waiting too long to create the system and all the backdoor maneuvering that goes on, to base their candidate selection on such a small sample size is also, I think, detrimental to democracy. And I also wonder if there's going to be a similar controversy down the line about how exactly the polling is done. For example, there's a controversy now in the DPP about whether to include cell phones. Um, you also have discussion in past years about, for these opinion polls, do you include internet polling and how reliable that is? And for the KMT, which is trying to win over young people particularly, I think these will be very salient issues because young people don't have, oftentimes they don't have landlines and maybe they're more prone to voting on the internet. And I just think that, you know, with this many people with a, a stake in the race, if people see results that they don't like or something that might not favor them, uh, they probably will criticize it. So I think there's still right for there's potential for controversy. Because Terry Gore, of course, Ross said this did call for cell phones to be used in the KMT poll this week. But do you see, like Brian pointed out, if there's controversy over the results, could we see people like Terry Gore possibly moving away and running as an independent candidate? Well, one would hope that Mr. Goh, given um, his company's role in the ICT consumer electronic supply chain, can make phones available, <laughs> uh, whether landlines or, or mobile phones, maybe a subsidized phone program through some of its uh, uh, partners that, that uh, uh, Foxconn and I manufactures for. But, but uh, I think this conversation tells us uh, that there's room still for someone we haven't mentioned yet, and that's Taipei City, Maricoa, or possibly some other candidate. There's talk about uh, the gentleman who was the premier at the end, the final few months, the lame duck period of the Ma Ying-jeou administration. Uh, Zhang Xiangzheng um, has, has some popularity and considered to have done a reasonably good job during those final few months. Uh, there's talk that he might run as an independent. There's also talk that he would accept the vice presidential nomination for one of the KMT candidates, uh, but he hasn't revealed either way what his plans are. Uh, so to the extent that uh, the issues that Brian identified and you identified, Gavin, hold true that that voters, younger voters specifically, are frustrated, they might say, uh, well, I don't like either of these parties and, and their candidate or the way the candidate was selected, and I'm going to look for an alternative. And that's where there's room maybe for uh, Coenger or possibly someone else. And Brian, what about moving the seat of the presidency to Kaohsiung? Um, I mean, the way Han phrased it is somewhat absurd. I mean, despite the fact that this idea has been raised in the past, uh, he seemed to want to avoid the work of it. He claimed that this would be a way to be the mayor of Kaohsiung 
and the president at the same time, which is a very strange claim. Um, it already caused controversy, for example, if a mayor doesn't resign their position before running for president. And Han, this is one of these ideas, I think, that he floats, and he does actually get much more uh, blowback for because it is outlandish and just seems like off the spur of the cuff. But then again, you have all these talk by all the different KMT presidential candidates of changing the way the presidential uh, arrangement of powers is, for example, with Eric Chu and Terry Goh and Han Gore suggesting drastic amendments to the presidency and the premiership and the relation of that to the legislature. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting how those ideas come up with all of them. Um, all, all past presidential candidates in the recent uh, presidential elections have floated ideas about uh, fixing what, what we all know to be a dreadful system where, where the line between the authority, the power on paper or in practice between the president and the premier is, is so blurred that nobody really remembers even what the Constitution actually intended, unfortunately. So, so we're so far away from where we're supposed to be and we have this you know, kind of sort of system that is sort of kind of like France. Uh, but regardless, uh, I, people are going to forget what Hango you said about this because he'll say something else that's uh, uh, like even more likely to, to cause public uh, discussion. I'm trying to be diplomatic. Uh, but but clearly has a habit of doing that. And I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism. It's, it's an observation that he does have a habit of saying things. Uh, uh, did, didn't, Brian, didn't he also say something along the lines of he's willing to be the, the president and the premier? That's right. Yeah. right? So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, not, not just, <laughs> not just mayor as well. Uh, and, and you know what? Even if he won the presidential election and he did spend half or more of his time in Gaussyung and there was a new mayor who, who had to take over under the, the laws that, that um, facilitate uh, that, uh, chances are that that replacement mayor would actually have some level of independence. I, I, I wouldn't even assume that it would just be Han's person. Mm-hmm. And that I also Han, think Han would eventually Han, move Han, to Taipei. Han could control that, that mayor. I mean, if you look at uh, the time when there was a KMT mayor in Taipei and a KMT president, Ma ying and Hao Long-Bing, I mean, it's not like Hao Long-Bing was controlled by Ma ying I mean, they got along because they're from the same party, but uh, I think Mayor Hao maintained his independence. So uh, even if, if a President Han was to, spend, was to spend a lot of time in Kaohsiung, uh, I don't think he would be running the the city administration, as well as trying to run the central government administration. But regardless, this is all speculative and just fun to talk about. But if we look at all these past proposals of a similar nature, including the one that Gavin mentioned, moving the legislative UN to Taichung, some people talk about this for a few days and then everyone forgets about it. They move on, yes, and of course all that means changing the constitution, and of course the current government are having great difficulty doing that today as we speak, but we'll talk about that next week. But we will move on for now anyway, and President Tsai Ing-wen is warning about China's influence over the island's media organisations, and apparently Beijing's using them to promote its unification agenda. Now according to Tsai, she has long noticed that domestic media outlets have been under pressure from China, and she said that this constitutes obstruction of Taiwan's democracy, domestic freedom of the press and also interference in the island's internal affairs. Well, her comments come after several dozen journalists from Taiwan attended the fourth cross-strait media people summit in Beijing this past weekend. And speaking at that event, a Chinese official said that media on both sides of the Taiwan Strait must uphold national ethics by promoting Chinese culture, deepening the integration of emotions and continuing to promote the peaceful development of cross-strait relations and promoting the process of peaceful unification of the mother land and strive to realize the china dream so there you go brian 
local media striving to realise the China dream. Some of them do it on a daily basis. I won't name <laughs> the newspapers and television stations that do, but do you see that as a good thing or a rather unnerving thing? It is unnerving, I think. Um, although these issues have been talked about for such a long time, and I think this meeting in that sense doesn't surprise. It is the usual suspects that were there, China Times, United Daily News, uh, CTI, and so forth. And so it doesn't surprise. I mean, we also have issues of, let's say, retired military officials going to China and holding meetings, and uh, it's no different from media. Just at the same time, currently now there's discussion of uh, for example, the Want Want Group is filing a lawsuit against, or at least they threatened a lawsuit against Apple Daily for alleging that they're taking money from China directly. Um, sometimes there's always been talk of these Pan Blue media outlets, how to draw the line between a legitimate donation or investment and money coming from the Chinese government. And a lot of times that can just go through a sympathetic businessman or something like that. And apart from that, uh, there's even reports that uh, there's a condemnation issued by the Association of Taiwan Journalists that there are reports by people in the National Security Council that possibly news outlets are seeking approval from China before they run some stories. And also, it's not sure where the exact you know, proof of this is. However, you know, these are things that have been discussed for a long time. Um, either way, the slant of these Pan Blue media outlets is pretty clear. So, Well, given that the slant is pretty clear, if, if the audience doesn't like it, change the channel. Or if, if you don't like the content in some of those newspapers, such as uh, United Daily News or China Times, don't read it. Uh, so this is, uh, as Brian said, this is not a new issue. Everyone knows that some media print or television or online media have their biases, whether they favor uh, the 92 consensus or the long-term unification of Taiwan with China, or they favor independence. These things are abundantly obvious to anyone who reads the news or watches television talk shows, the hosts and the the stations or the newspapers, they all have their biases. That's just part of having uh, a healthy media environment in a democracy that people are entitled to have their biases. One could argue a free media in a democratic society, because, of course, if one went on television in China, Ross, and said Xi Jinping sucks eggs, pickled eggs, they would be off to a gulag. That's true, but that, that's not relevant to the conversation here because the media environment is free. It's so free that if you want to support independence, you can go on TV and say that. You want to support unification, you could go on TV and say that. And if uh, the ownership wants to have that editorial line, they could do that as well, just like any other public policy issue. And given that this is so abundantly obvious, and everybody knows this, who's watched TV or read a newspaper for the last 25 years here in Taiwan, uh, it's almost peculiar to be making an issue of it. So this forum, which uh, the participants did get a lot of criticism, and rightly so, uh, but it's what you said the fourth time. I was just checking that. I believe right? it's the fourth one. Yes. So, so we're having the same conversation. Now, I'm sure there will be people and perhaps the government would say, oh, but this time it's different because China's behavior is different. Uh, China's being more aggressive about constricting Taiwan's international space. China is conducting more military exercises. China is engaging in uh, social media activities to uh, interfere in Taiwan's democratic processes. All those things are, are, are happening. However, does it, does it really change the state of play where we are? I would say no. It's state of play as far as these media outlets, because as we've been saying for the last few minutes, everybody knows what their bias are. And we'll never reach a place where we could all agree on the monetary issue because there's always going to be somebody who says, oh, well, want one group sells 
products in China. Thus, China Times takes money from China. Obviously, it's not that simple. It's a lot more nuanced to different business divisions. Uh, so, uh, or there was some some media coverage of the fact that parts of the group get subsidies from local or, or, or provincial Chinese government agencies or, or the, even the central government in China, just as part of normal business operations, things any company operating in China might be entitled to apply and receive, whether it's discounted land or utilities or some kind of tax rebate. Uh, and people are making an issue of that. But uh, the, the, the reality is, is that uh, one, one is a large corporate with various business activities, some of which do receive money from the Chinese government in the normal course of business activities. And yes, we all know that their media division has a certain editorial line. None of this is a surprise. So, Gavin, this ultimately links back to the timing of where we are, which is election season. And understandably, the president and the DPP will make an issue of this because they want to make China and China influence an important part of their election campaign. Right, Brian, of course, you, you ran a media organization that definitely <laughs> did not get an invite to this meeting in Beijing. Um, that's right. And so actually, particularly from the standpoint of online media, there's the concern that China is propping up a particularly small media outlet sometimes that don't have... Um, you know that that aren't actually large-scale media organizations as a way to uh, disseminate misinformation. For example, there was concern about Fire News, which was run by uh, four New Party youth spokespersons, and that was receiving funding from China. Reportedly, they were getting paid for just even likes on Facebook. And despite how much money they were getting from China, according to the charges, they could not actually grow their media outlet, which was strange. Um, but that's the issue. I think that just particularly these issues are not new issues, but they have become really linked to growing discussion of fake news and also just how easy it is to disseminate false information that's unverifiable through the internet. Um, so it's also just not just, I think, although maybe the spotlight does focus on these large media companies who, you know, we know their political biases and these char- charges against them are longstanding. Also, it does go back to just the fact is uh, a lot of people do actually believe things that they see on the internet and do not verify it and do not fact check it. Um, you have a lot of things spreading through line and so forth. And, you know, yeah. you can't really check that. Believing things on the internet, that's a dangerous thing to do. It draws <laughs> the line between sensible and stupidity, as far as I'm concerned. And we're moving on from politics, and we'll talk about ID cards, because the Ministry of the Interior this week says it expects to launch the new national EID card next October. Now, the Interior Minister, Xu Guoyong, says that his office will work out an initial plan for issuing the so-called EID cards in July and announce a more detailed plan, including what could be a rather controversial final design in September. So, of course, the argument here, Brian, is the flag or not the flag, the gender (laughs) or not the gender. Um, that's right. And it does tie to, for example, social issues, at least the gender aspect that also ties back to, for example, the discussion of gay marriage and um, LGBTQ rights and so forth, which is a controversial issue. But then you have the issue of just even putting the flag on there. Um, that becomes controversial because of identity issues in Taiwan. Um, what do you think of Taiwan as? Do you think of it as part of China, Republic of China? As, as a Republic of China or what have you, um, there's controversy about the Republic of China flag because the KMT logo is on it. Um, and before, there was this dispute about the ID, ID cards and the designs with the voting on them that was supposed to happen online. There was one design perceived as pro-independence, uh, one design perceived as pro-unification because it had Sun Yat-sen on it. Um, the pro-independence one was just the name referred to Taiwan as like an island nation, so that became controversial. And the winning design, which was the, based on the one that's being discussed now, is based on that. It is it's trying to strike a neutral ground and feature the ROC flag and things like that. But even that is still controversial. So, Ross, ID cards. Obviously, we don't have the ID cards that the local people have. 
And obviously we come from countries that don't actually have identification cards anyway. So the argument about ID cards and design thereof. Well, it's important because uh, even though, as you said, we, we might come from countries where a national ID card is not used and other forms of ID are used, such as in the United States where it's commonly uh, the driver's license issued by the state that's used. But the fact of life here in Taiwan is that ID cards are required to be shown in innumerable daily interactions, which is not different from other parts of Asia or, or Europe. Uh, so people take this out on a routine basis and they're going to have to look at it. And if they're not comfortable with the design <laughs> or the appearance of the flag or the lack of a flag, they're, they're going to make an issue of it. Obviously, the government has its own biases on these issues, and it's not a government that's inclined to use uh, too much or too flashy indications of this island's association with the Republic of China, whether that's the flag or Sun Yat-sen or other indicia of the Republic of China. So they're trying to strike a neutral balance so they could say that they follow uh, or respect the fact that the name of the country is still the Republic of China. You know, they respect, respect the flag. Uh, unfortunately, for the government, like so many other things, uh, they waited too long on this, and now it's too close to the election, so it becomes... Yeah. <laughs> it could all be over by October. <laughs> In fact, the money they wasted on these designs could all be changed by the time October of next year comes round. This could have easily been, been taken care of a couple of years ago. And in fact, it would have been one more achievement that the incumbent government could have cited during the election campaign. We did the National ID card. We rolled it out to 23 million people. We're great. We're efficient. Uh, but instead, they're letting it, it it not roll out, but instead roll in to the election campaign season where anything that goes wrong or anything that's controversial is going to become a talking point. So anything that goes wrong in this process in the coming months, now that we're in the sensitive period where it's close to completion, is just going to be something that their opponents can criticize them over. I think you should use the word fester there actually Ross to be honest when it comes to the ID cards sitting over to next year anyway we should take a short break now but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and the European Union is once again urging Taiwan to introduce a temporary moratorium on the death penalty. And according to the European External Action Service, although the EU and Taiwan share democratic values and a respect for human rights, the death penalty remains problematic. That's a bit of an understatement. And while the EU's diplomatic service commended Taiwan for recent developments on its human rights, it also said that it regrets the resumption of executions here in Taiwan and also reiterated that the death penalty has no deterrent effect and is an inhumane punishment. Now, Taiwan most recently executed a death row inmate in August of 2018 in what was the first execution to be carried out under the Tsai administration. But according to numerous polls that get carried out every couple of months, some 80% of the public here still supports the use of the death penalty. So, Brian, do you think the government will listen or turn a listen politely and go, OK, to the EU? I think they probably will just shrug it off. Um, it's very interesting because Taiwan always, uh, particularly under the current administration, wants to depict itself as progressive and uh, leading the way in terms of human rights. But there are some issues on which Taiwan does diverge because of the, the views of the Taiwanese public. Um, death penalty is one of them, and drug policy, liberalization of drug policy is another. Um, and so this is, I think, an issue that the Taiwan nation is, will just sort of shrug off. 
it was actually very interesting when the uh, the execution in last August occurred because that was around the time of a series of dismemberment incidents, um, murder and dismemberment incidents. And the, the, the profile of the murder that was executed was somewhat similar, despite the fact that it was a much earlier case. So I do think that was in response to public pressure on the government to use the death penalty as a deterrent for violent crimes. And it, it did seem like a way to try to boost popularity. Um, but I'm also surprised the EU is only making this announcement now because, again, the last election was – the last execution was about one year ago. I mean, not one year ago, half a year ago. Well, they, the uh, previous execution also came in advance of the local election where the government mm-hmm. uh, was, was trying to show that it was tough on crime because of those dismemberment uh, cases, the, you know, very horrific crimes that received so much public attention. Uh, I, I don't know if shrug it off is the approach that the government will take. I think the government will respond to the EU by citing the public poll. So they're basically abdicating leadership on this issue, which I think is similar to some of the other issues on which they abdicate leadership on, and that might be <laughs> marriage equality uh, or or the ID card rollout. Uh, but But this is clearly... Another example, because if if the government wanted to eliminate the death penalty, they could have used their legislative majority, which they've had since the first half of 2016. They could have continued with the moratorium. The minister of justice who came into office after his predecessor was pushed out uh, was clearly under instructions to execute someone. I mean, they'll never admit that publicly, but that's clearly what happened. The alternative approach would have been to say, congratulations, you're appointed minister of justice, but we don't want you to sign any execution orders. We want to maintain the moratorium. They chose the former instead of the decision makers, uh, obviously the president and premier at the time. They chose the the former rather than the latter. And to me, again, that's uh, abdicating leadership. Now, me personally, I, I, I'm not going to hide the fact, Gavin, that, that I do think the death penalty is appropriate in certain, certain circumstances. And it is currently uh, on the books. It's legal here in Taiwan to use the death penalty. And obviously, uh, some people object to that, whether here in Taiwan or internationally, but it is the law. And clearly, the public overwhelmingly supports it. Uh, and when it is on the books as the as as an available penalty, then it should be used. I mean, one of the frustrations that we have in the U.S. is that uh, appeals for death penalty cases can go on for ten to fifteen or years or even longer and cost the taxpayer millions of dollars. Uh, and we see that here where where people have uh, been on death row after they've exhausted all their appeals uh, for many years. This uh, not only costs the taxpayers money, but uh, it, it is fair to say, and I, I trust Brian would agree with me, that it's a, a human rights concern to have somebody on death row for many, many years where they're wondering when when are, when is the executioner. We can't say hangman because here they use a gunshot to the back of the head, which I admit is a bit is a bit uh, aggressive by Western standards uh, as opposed to using lethal injection. Uh, but uh, being on death row for for an open-ended period of time where you don't know when the executioner is going to come knock on the cell door and take you out to to the yard for for, for execution, that, that is inappropriate as well. Um, and that's also another area where the government or the authorities could be criticized for for not fixing that either. Uh, so the the EU is going to complain and the government is probably going to hide. They're going to say, oh, but this is what the public wants, or they'll use the, the common fallback argument that often we often hear in this situation, which is, well, it's a very sensitive issue and we have to take into account the views of all sectors of society. And we still haven't reached consensus on the matter. <laughs> 
And it's interesting just what the government is willing to shrug off then. Um, you know, for example, that it was willing to put forth a sort of gay marriage bill despite the referendum results, or that is still committed to uh, nuclear home, free homeland by 2025 despite the referendum results. Um, you know, that's, uh, capital punishment has never become an issue big enough to have a referendum drive that will get anywhere. But um, <laughs> given what the views of the Taiwanese public are, however, um, it is interesting that this is something that the government will diverge from um, attempts to be internationally progressive or look like that. And, you know, what issues it is willing to break from the public and what issues it is not. And the death penalty is always one of these key issues. Wait, what do you mean diverge from international, Brian? They're diverging from their own beliefs um, and their own I longstanding mean- <laughs> policies. This is what we stand for. I mean, this is what they've said they stand for for years, right? They, when they were in opposition between 2008 and 2016, when they were in government from 2000 to 2008, it was very clear what their positions were on some of these issues. Then they become, they become president, they, not just president, but they have unified government because they have an overwhelming majority in the legislative unit, and they do something different. Mm. I was going to use the phrase, they could have shot themselves in the foot, Ross, actually. Well, 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 I was thinking, uh, <laughs> when, when Brian said the, the, there hasn't been any traction for uh, uh, ending the death penalty referendum, I was thinking you'd have to put a gun to people's heads to get them to sign a petition <laughs> to go forward with that referendum, let alone vote in favor of it. Uh, Brian, looking at this in another manner, do you think maybe the, I mean, the European Union could possibly use this as leverage over Taiwan for a, a trade agreement or any other agreements that could possibly, Taiwan could be seeking to sign with Europe? Um, I think it's unlikely. Just I think the you know, economic matters do take precedent over human rights issues for nations generally. Um, but it does have a, a moral weight. And I think that you know, particularly progressive groups in Taiwan that are opposed to gay marriage will seize on this as, as leverage for their own campaigning that you know, this is international standards, this is what the EU says, and you know, we should follow with international standards. You see a lot of these groups that are opposed to the death penalty, uh, which share people, basically the same group of people involved in human rights efforts, cross-strait issues, and so forth, um, they often do raise this, that, um, you know, what about Taiwan? Then Taiwan should, what should it try to, uh, you know, pattern itself after in terms of laws and human rights protections? Um, so it has some moral weight, but I think it won't have any actual weight on the public. Right now, talking of other moral weight, the Mainland Affairs Council on Tuesday of this week announced that former Causeway Bay Books owner Lam Wing Kee will be granted a visa extension here in order to allow him to sort out his work permit. How nice of them. Now, the National Immigration Agency has decided to extend Lam's visa by two months, allowing him to stand to July the 14th. And council officials say the extension was granted because Lam needs more time to apply for a work permit that qualifies him for residency in Taiwan and the government is willing to provide assistance if he has any procedural questions. How nice of them. Now Lam is being quoted as saying that he will continue to try to look for a job here that meets the government's requirements for a work permit for foreigners while also seeking to make progress on his long-term plan of opening a bookstore here. Now Lam fled to Taiwan on April the 25th due to concerns that he could be sent to China under a rather controversial extradition bill in Hong Kong which the government there is likely to pass in the coming months. So, Ross, Lam Wing Kee here, his visa's been extended. Um, wouldn't, would not this have happened to Joe Blow Public? It's interesting you, you phrase that question that way because we do have a lot of uh, listeners in the audience who are foreigners working in Taiwan who've all gone through the experience of uh, obtaining employment, applying for uh, the necessary paperwork so that they can then go to the National Immigration Agency and get their uh, alien residence certificate card. Uh, uh, so the key thing for Mr. Lamb at this stage appears to be 
find somebody who wants to hire him and can actually give him a job uh, and he would need to satisfy uh, a number of requirements. Depends on uh, what industry the employer's in. Uh, it, could, you know, it could even be a government agency that hires him. Government agencies do hire foreigners for various types of uh, jobs. Uh, and given his own background, uh, he could do some Cantonese language programming for a government news agency, for example. But but the key point is uh, he has to find an employer who, who's, who is able to hire a foreigner and he'd have to uh, fit whatever regulations apply to that employer's industry and, and uh, whatever qualifications are necessary uh, for a foreigner to fulfill the role that he is seeking to apply. So uh, none of this is actually a mystery. I mean, the, the regular you know, people think, some people say, oh, it's difficult to get a work permit in Taiwan. Actually, it's not. You just got to fit into uh, these various regulations that I've been describing. Uh, so if there's an employer who wants to hire him and he f- could uh, fulfill whatever requirements are, are uh, applicable to this employer and this job, then he'll get his, his alien residence certificate. But even if he does, that, that would only be good for a, a limited duration of time. You know, Typically, an initial uh, alien residence certificate might only be 15 months, and then it would have to be reviewed, uh, renewed multiple times until he might be able to qualify for permanent residence. You know, there's other alternatives such as investment, and there's been some news coverage in the last few years as uh, some people have complained in Hong Kong about uh, change to the atmosphere, whether whether it's uh, uh, the, the really restrictive uh, space for public discourse or uh, the high cost of housing, too many people moving to Hong Kong from China, uh, Hong Kong people have a number of complaints. So you get, you get some news coverage here about what, what actually is a very small number. Let's not exaggerate, but it's a, it's a few thousand over the last few years of people from Hong Kong who've actually relocated to Taiwan on the basis of investment, not on the basis of being employed. Uh, and the investment number is several hundred thousand, the equivalent of several hundred thousand U.S. dollars, and they could get residency as well. It appears that Mr. Lamb does not have a few hundred thousand U.S. dollars to his name that would qualify him to get an investment visa, and uh, that's why he is seeking uh, residency through employment. Uh, good luck to him. Uh, but there is a risk here for the government of Taiwan, and we saw this recently with the student who uh, went on the internet and, and the Chinese student who, who complained about uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party's policies and, and now needs to get asylum and remain in Taiwan. Uh, the, the risk uh, for the government here is you get more people seeking uh, to remain in Taiwan uh, on the basis of uh, criticizing the Chinese government. And you're basically creating, a, a if you want to call it a refugee issue or an asylum issue, uh, we, we've all been through the debate or, or the discussion about the lack of uh, an applicable refugee or political asylum law for people from Hong Kong and China or for other uh, jurisdictions as well. Uh, whether there's a proposed law that's been stalled in the legislative UN, which didn't even include, sorry, it didn't even include people from China and, and Hong Kong. But anyway, uh, the, the risk here is that you're going to get more people who are trying to do the same thing. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily what the government wants. Um, yeah, Lam has been having trouble finding investment for his uh, Causeway. His plan to open Causeway Bay books in Taiwan for a while, and so it's not surprising he continues to have such issues. Um, at the same time, I think just the government giving him the two months is also a sign that uh, the government is actually somewhat undecided what to do with him and regarding his application asylum. Um, interesting enough, there are five high-profile cases regarding uh, Chinese or Hong Kong asylum seekers in Taiwan right now, and they're all set to become big issues in the coming months when these people's visas or whatever status they're in Taiwan under expires. Lam is one. Uh, there's a student from Hong Kong, there's a localist that fled to Taiwan in 2000. 
17 and then disappeared for the next two years, and she recently emerged, and so now the National Immigration Agency is looking for her. She overstayed her visa, which was also one month long. Um, and then there's the student from China that Ross just mentioned, whose visa expires in July 2nd. And there's these two Chinese dissidents who were stuck in Taiwan International Airport for 100 days while the Thai administration could not decide what to do with them. And so there are these five cases, and so far the government has handled them on a ad hoc basis, um, usually as it does when there's an asylum seeker from China or somewhere else. And uh, But unfortunately, just the fact that there is no process for going through asylum applications and uh, having a legitimate process to decide what to do with them, that's going to become an issue when just these cases start coming up. And is Taiwan going to send these people back, potentially back to Hong Kong, where they could face jail sentences or deportation to China and so forth, or to China, in which that's another issue then. What about if there are Chinese asylum seekers that then come to Taiwan and really want to stay here, a wave of asylum seekers? Right. And before we go today, if Mr. Lam was taller and younger, he could have got a job with the Chinese Taipei Basketball Association, because this Wednesday, they announced that it's hoping to re- recruit a new foreign player this summer to play on the national basketball team. Now, the player will replace Quincy Davis, who's 36 years old, and renounce his US citizenship and obtained ROC citizenship in 2013 in order to play on the national team. However, Davis's career has been dogged with injuries in recent years, and he's not played for the national team since 2017. Now, of course, naturalising citizens to play on national sports teams is very uncommon where I come from because you don't get many non-English people playing on the English soccer team. Now, but in the Philippines, Japan, South Korea, even China, the Lebanon and Jordan apparently are among the countries that have resorted to foreign players, giving them citizenship to boost their squads. So, Ross, hiring a foreigner to play on the national team. Well, I actually have to disagree with something you just said, Gavin, because you said in England you don't get a lot of non-English players on the national team. That's the whole point of this process, is you take somebody who's not fill-in-the-blank, Taiwanese or English, you make them a citizen of Taiwan or England, thus they then qualify to play on the national team, right? So they go through a, a, a naturalization process and they have citizenship, they have, have the passport, the ID card. We were talking about ID cards earlier. Then they qualify. So that, that's, you know, the way you described it, I would disagree with with that, that approach. Uh, but the people in Taiwan, I think they're happy to see a competitive player come on the team, regardless of uh, the fact that they just naturalized recently or that they look different. Um, it's not been common here uh, for ver- across the national sports teams, whether it's basketball or, or soccer or baseball. Baseball's or, avoided it, I believe. Well, there, there's a local talent pool, so it's not, it hasn't been necessary. Uh, but uh, as you said, Gavin, it's common in, in many countries. Uh, you didn't mention Singapore, where it's very common and has been very controversial, um, excuse me, <clears throat> because they brought in a lot of athletes from the People's Republic of China. And one of the reasons why the government in Singapore did that is they said, well, they're ethnically Chinese, <clears throat> so they could fit in easily in our society, which is majority Chinese. Uh, but it's become controversial because some of these athletes got a lot of money to, to come, come or, or subsidies, to be fair, uh, subsidized housing or coaching. Uh, but then they don't necessarily stay in Singapore after a few years. They return to China while retaining their Singapore citizenship. So it became very controversial there. Although Singapore has also brought in athletes from um, uh, uh, countries besides China as well. I, I don't think this is going to be very controversial here that because of the precedent of, of, of uh, Quincy. Uh, it hasn't necessarily worked out. I mean, it hasn't brought the Taiwan team to greatness in, in international <laughs> tournaments. So uh, the key thing there is uh, 
it takes a team. It's not just one player who, who can make a big difference. And I think that actually exposes um, the shortcomings in so many of Taiwan's national sports programs that they and this is something we've talked about on the show many times over the years for different sports, different national tournaments is other than periodically in baseball, Taiwan just repeatedly seems not to improve the quality of its national sports teams. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think the Taiwanese public probably would not respond to, uh, or be find this too controversial. I think the issues, though, are particularly foreigners seeking employment in Taiwan or some kind of more permanent citizenship status, residency status or citizenship status. Um, it is controversial that the programs the government offers for this uh, are usually given to, let's say, elderly missionaries or uh, academics or um, actors or celebrities, basically, or sports stars in this case. This is a tall person. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's going to be a qualification. Um, <laughs> now, and- well, now, Brian, I'm going to I'm going to have to disagree with you on there because, to be fair, the the law to become a citizen has significantly changed in recent years. It is easier for common folk like us. Who, who've lived here a while to become citizens as well. It does help, though. I do disagree that it does. I do agree with you that it does help if you have some special talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people who've lived here a long time and have been productive residents as foreigners, for example, successful in, in business, uh, you don't have to have some extraordinary talent to acquire ROC citizenship. So it is easier now. But certainly the pathway is accelerated if you have some special skill. Mm, that's right. I think, but also just Taiwan is coping with the brain drain and, and issues of you know talent going elsewhere. And so this is another one of those issues why maybe it's still controversial. It hasn't opened up enough um, in the eyes of many. So if you happen to be listening to the show and you're about seven foot two and you can dribble <laughs> a basketball, there's a job for you with the Chinese Taipei Basketball Association. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And Brian Hugh. Uh, good evening. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps. We can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.